Has the war on the Ukraine affected the way that people around the world think about the United States? I'll discuss this on episode 768 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Look, if you want to support the show, go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. It's a great website. It is my educational portal. I've got over 20 classes available for purchase there on all kinds of great stuff. And I've got more coming out this year. So you can purchase a class class there. If you like the podcast, you're going to like the format of the Academy. And it's, I mean, look, I've got classes on the war, on the Constitution, on uh, just straight American history survey courses, on various reading topics, Calhoun, Jefferson Davis, Copperheads, the Constitution in terms of uh, the documents in favor of ratification, all kinds of great stuff there, all different price ranges. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll free of charge, get that free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll, and of course you support this podcast. All right. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get it. Let people know you're listening to it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Also, great ways to support the show painlessly, but just by doing that. Okay, so let's talk about the topic. And again, foreign policy, as I, as I mentioned you know, last week with war, foreign policy really is the driving factor for the general government. It's the one thing the general government has essentially a monopoly over when it comes to uh, the Constitution. And we know this is the case because if you look at the two areas that the founding generation, as they were drafting and ratifying the Constitution, focused on, it was commerce and defense. And defense, of course, encompasses diplomacy and our relationship with the rest of the world. Now, the original American position in this, of course, was limited involvement. It was not isolation, but it was a position of strength through peace, right? So if you think about the Washington administration, if you think about the Jefferson administration, and of course all the administrations that followed, and I skip over John Adams, even though John Adams was also trying to unentangle the United States from Europe, you had the uh, Convention of 1800, which essentially settled any problems between the French and the United States. Uh, This was, of course, brought on by the Napoleonic uh, situation in France. Napoleon was trying to make peace with everyone before he went to war with the rest of Europe. But the fact is, the United States was trying to disentangle itself from everything. We didn't want to be part of an alliance with the French after the war is over because that could get us involved in the war with the British. We didn't really want to be involved in an alliance with the British because that could get us involved in a war with France. So the United States was, when I say peace through through, uh, strength, what I mean by that is not a strong military, but a strong non-interventionist position. Operating from a non-interventionist position is strength. We're going to trade with everybody if we can. This was essentially the Non-Intercourse Act that, uh, you know, in Macon's Bill Number 2, these were what, um, Macon's Bill Number 2 was a response to Jefferson and the Non-Intercourse Act, which came in the early 19th century. But Macon was saying, look, we're going to trade, we're going to pick a primary trading partner, but we're also going to trade with everybody else. All you got to do is just not attack us. And of course, this would ultimately lead to the War of 1812 as uh, the United States chose poorly in in, uh, siding with France eventually. But regardless, 
Uh, this idea of non-intervention was certainly part of American early American foreign policy, and it was driven, of course, by the executive branch. Now, we know that people like James Madison and others thought that there should be some congressional uh, influence in this as well. Uh, this is where you had uh, these, these debates over how much unilateral power the president had in treaties. And so even outside of treaties, executive agreements, are those things even constitutional? Can the president come up with an agreement to do X, Y, or Z without the influence of Congress? We know that in the Constitution, the Senate has a role, a concurrent role in foreign policy. But what about the House? This is always a, que a question that uh, people had, uh, had raised even in the founding period. What kind of role does the House have in foreign policy? And that essentially came down to war and peace. Can the president unilaterally declare, say, peace? Can we say we're going to be neutral? Or does Congress only have the authority to do that? This actually was uh, most deeply expressed in what's known as the Pacificus Helvidius debates over Washington's neutrality proclamation. And Jefferson urged James Madison to take up the pen and go after Alexander Hamilton, who essentially said the president has unilateral control over this. And Madison was saying, no, you don't. So this later leads to things, like I said, executive agreements. These are bypassing the Senate. They're not treaties, but they're verbal agreements from the President of the United States to a foreign power to do something. It could be money. It could be support. It could be, uh, it could be uh, you know, some type of commitment on human rights. It could be anything. Does the President have that kind of unilateral power? Well, in the 20th century, we generally think the Presidents do. Of course, I would disagree with this. I think that the power to do all of these things should be reviewed by the Senate. This is where you have the treaty-making power. These are all essentially treaties. If the United States promises to send $10 billion or $100 billion to a, to a foreign power, and the president says we're going to do it, and then, of course, the Congress later backs it up. We know Congress has done this recently with Ukraine to send a lot of money to Ukraine, but the presidents are going to go out and they're going to say, we're going to promise to send this kind of money or these kind of weapons or these kind of things to foreign powers. Well, that would be something like a treaty. It's essentially what it is. And the United States then is committed legally, essentially, to doing that because the president has said we're going to do it. So this leads to a question about executive government. And as I said, foreign policy is one of the most important things in the United States because it does drive domestic policy. If you've got the president pledging X amount of dollars to foreign powers, and of course the Congress has to back that up, we don't have the money, so we're going to have to borrow the money to do it. That event inevitably leads to a question on debt and everything else. So all of this certainly works. And when you spend more money, you get inflation. We're seeing that now. You've got to raise taxes. You've got to do all kinds of things to try to compensate for presidents agreeing to send money or materials to foreign countries, whatever for whatever reason. It could be a humanitarian reason, could be a military reason, for whatever reason. And this is where people like Rand Paul and others have said, look, we need to cut off all foreign aid because foreign aid is taken from American pockets through taxes or borrowing. We're, we're borrowing and spending money for foreign powers we simply don't have. And could we not spend that $100 billion if we're going to spend it here on American citizens instead of a proxy war in Ukraine? Now, the question is, though, what has Ukraine done to the standing of the United States around the world? We know that during the Trump administration, there was generally a withdrawal, not, not, not 
isolation, but non-intervention. And Trump had called out NATO for putting forward more money to defend themselves. The United States wasn't going to be the world's police force, and we weren't going to spend all the money on military items to go and fund the rest of the world. Now, what's happened with the war in the Ukraine is the United States is now spending billions of dollars to basically outfit the Ukrainian army. That's American money that's doing all of this stuff. And we know that there are other European powers. For example, uh, just recently, as I'm recording this, uh, Poland has decided to send tanks into the Ukraine. And Germany was trying to block this, knowing full well that if a NATO power would do something like this, well, that could involve the rest of the Europe, uh, European powers, the rest of NATO, in a war with Russia. I mean, look, this is what treaties do. When, when Poland engages, because that's essentially what they're now doing, that means Germany essentially engages, and everyone else in Europe engages. And we're not certain about Putin and what he's willing to do or not willing to do in terms of a response to anything that happens around the world. He could get desperate. He could use nuclear weapons. We're on that. We're talking about that now in a serious way for the first time since the 1980s. Um, I think this is a, a real issue. So the question is, what about the U.S. role in all this? And uh, is the United States back because we're now supporting Ukraine and spending, you know, $100 billion in the Ukraine? And there was an article in Politico. Uh, so I'm going to pull that up here. I have to find it on my many, many tabs. But there was an article in Politico uh, about this particular issue. And the title is America in Decline, World Thinks Again. Subtitle. Bolstered by a strong response in Ukraine, the U.S. is once again the talk of Davos. Now, this would make you think that this is a good thing. This is a good thing, that the United States taking this position of being uh, you know, this world power again is a great thing. And you have to understand that there is a certain element, a very powerful element of the United States, whether it's in government or outside of it, that wants the United States to be this kind of superpower. They want the United States to be the world's imperial power. And we know this happened essentially after World War II. And of course, at that point, you had the Cold War, but the United States was the Western power. This developed as a result of the British sliding back a, a step and the United States taking over. Not even Trump would disagree with this. He would want the United States to lead because, but he would want the United States to lead in a different way. At least his foreign policy kind of set itself up that way. But there was a very, of course, interesting uh, dynamic You know, when, when Trump was um, in a photo op and he pushed another world leader out of the way to get to the front and straighten his suit. You know, Here I am, the United States. And you've also got Joe Biden kneeling in front of you know Amer uh, world leaders at Davos. I mean, so you have these very weird optics going on with American presidents and where we are. This article says the United States is leading, but you got Biden kneeling. Of course, the perception of Trump is that the United States wasn't leading, but yet he's standing out in front. So it's very strange how this is happening. And I think that Matthew uh, Kaminsky, who writes this piece, is the uh, uh, editor-in-chief of Politico, would be someone who would be favorable to the Biden administration in what they do. It doesn't matter the optics. He just thinks Biden is doing a better job because... The Congress and the Biden administration are spending all this money in Europe now on the Ukraine war against Russia. 
So he says, for the American abroad, the signals are unmistakable and dissonant. The world is bullish on America and American power. You read that right. This is the same world that looks on with glee or horror at the carnivalesque, occasionally violent politics on Capitol Hill. The same one that barely a year ago dismissed an America, defeated in Afghanistan, and has, and, and, as a has-been, and hailed the rise of a new authoritarian age led by China with an assist from Vladimir Putin's competent Russia. So this is, this is the world that looked at Russia and China as the leader in America has taken a step back because Biden had pulled us out of Afghanistan because we were defeated there. We had lost all prestige and power. This is Obama managing decline. Now, Trump, again, I don't think ever had a position of managing decline. He never uh, positioned himself as, as American decline. He positioned himself as America as non-interventionist. The Biden administration is doing uh, the opposite of that. They're pushing, positioning themselves as America as interventionist, not American decline. It is a, it is a contrast to the, to the Obama administration. Both, both presidencies are a contrast to the Obama administration. Um, and the Obama administration, you know, simply saying the United States is, is uh, we're in decline, we're not a great superpower, et cetera, et cetera. Both the, the, the Biden's much more uh, you know establishment. He always has been on when it comes to foreign policy. And the left, of course, in Congress don't like him for that. Well, Kaminsky says, now some caveats. By the world, we're referencing to C-suite and political mastodons and their assorted uh, retunes who spend $1,000 a night on a tiny bed in a drab two-star hotel to slosh around the icy streets of this alpine town for a week of the World Economic Economic Forum, the so-called Davos man and woman. By bullish, we don't mean unconditionally in love with America. When has it ever been the case? But recognizing somewhat begrudgingly its deep strengths and appeal, and doing so in ways that were unimaginable recently and jarring to anyone marinated in the daily cycle of American news. So he's saying, first of all, he slaps at all the people that go to Davos and they stay in two-star hotels, you know, $1,000 a night, etc., etc., but um, he's saying you know, for years, people were, were not thinking about the United States, but now they are. Now they are. They're thinking about the U.S. in terms of foreign policy. Why? He says, to be clear, we're not in the unipolar moment of the early 1990s or the era of hyperpuissance, hyperpower, as a former French foreign minister called the U.S. at the close of the century, and what was not intended as a compliment. Nor does this moment resemble the Pax Americana of the neoconservatives of the George W. Bush years. There's, in addition, a giant caveat most loudly voiced by Europeans. This new American-led age could differ in one crucial and to them dangerous aspect from past ages in its tepid view of globalization and liberal world order. And that makes them very anxious. So, he's saying this is not neoconservatism of George W. Bush. In some ways, though, it is. I mean, look, the Biden administration has been pursuing a policy of that. Now, Biden is not... um, He's not trying to create these large coalitions that Bush was trying to create. There is something about that. But he is certainly interested in American allies in Europe and fostering this American spirit of NATO. He's, he's saying we're going we're gonna to back NATO, we're going to do everything we can. But he's saying that the United States is not necessarily interested in uh, a broader global coalition, more of a European NATO-dominated coalition against Russia. And that's a bad thing. 
It is uh, not United States going alone. It has allies, but it's certainly in, in line with this idea that the United States is going to act in a way that's a bully, right? We're, we're going to use the economic and military might of the United States where we want and how we're going to want to do it. And that, of course, comes down to Ukraine and taking out Russia. Now, what's the end game there? Is Biden's end game simply to emasculate Russia and create uh, the United States as the world's only superpower again? We know China still is, of course, lurking out there. But is it to break this kind of coalition between China and Russia? Is that the end game? Is it to democratize, quote-unquote, Russia, whatever that means? Is Biden's foreign policy neoliberal? The liberal world order. I think that, that Kaminsky's missing something here. I think Biden is interested in that. The liberal world order, or you know, can you call this the new world order of the Bush years? I mean, what is it? But it's something else. It's not Trump. But first, listen to the positives that Davos man sees in America today, starting with his recently well-deployed hard power. President Joe Biden probably won't dwell on the irony of the gratitude for American leadership on Ukraine. Only months before Vladimir, Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to take Kiev, Biden ordered his out of Kabul. And sees, I'm sorry, ceding a 20-year war to the Taliban and infuriating his allies. Soon after, one European diplomat in Washington could memorably dis dismiss Biden's brainy and unexpected, I'm sorry, inexperienced foreign policy team thusly: "Quote, they've never had sex, but they're all read. They've all read the books on it." The perception of a superpower in decline seemed to confirm Putin's belief the United States lacked the stomach or muscle to stand in his way in Ukraine. So again, this is kind of what they're saying here: is this was. Obama's foreign policy early on, but now Biden is being much more uh, progressive, Wilsonian in foreign policy. So was Biden deking Putin and saying, we're getting out of Afghanistan, but we're going to go all in on you. We're not going to fight this war in the Middle East anymore, but we're going to go here. Now, this is, a, this is a strange back and forth in American foreign policy. We don't really have a straight direction. We're going to get out of proxy wars here, but we're going to get into proxy wars here. We're, we're picking proxy wars to go get involved in. Uh, we're going back to a Cold War mentality. So what is actually happening here is the real question. By many lights, the sole winner of the Russia war on Ukraine so far is the U.S. Accounting for nearly half the world's military capability, the U.S. has reminded friends and adversaries of its superiority. Iraq and Afghanistan, that's a bad and but fading memory. Armed and aided by Washington, the Ukrainians have not just withstood the assault, but destroyed a large chunk of the Russian military. Washington also gets points for its diplomacy. Even the French, usually eager to, block, to knock the U.S. down, sound complimentary. So the real winner in Ukraine to the world is the United States, though, is it? I mean, is getting the, United, getting the world or getting the United States, or even NATO, embroiled in a larger war, which could turn nuclear a victory for the world. Because we go out and we are going to bully, use our military capabilities, our money and our weapons, to bully uh, somebody else, or to support somebody else. Now, the piece last week talked about this. Are we really doing well in Ukraine? Or is it showing weaknesses in the American military? Money doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have great success. And weapons systems, if they're being destroyed, are hard to reproduce. So is this is the United States shooting everything it has at this and the Russians simply sitting back and waiting in some ways until Ukraine exhausts itself and then they just come in 
uh, with very low-tech conventional weapons and take it over, would they ultimately win the day? Is that going to be the end result? We know the Ukrainians are getting exhausted. This is why people are already starting to call for Polish tanks to go in, for foreign troops to go in. We've got to go in and defend Ukraine now because they're getting exhausted. They're losing too many men and material and money. They don't have it. So what's happening here? You see, is the United States really winning this or is it not? Is it a long, long conflict we're setting ourselves up for? Quote, the U.S. has taken the lead convincingly and, and quite deftly on Ukraine. Francois Heisborg, the veteran and often critical French observer of American foreign policy in action, told me. Referring to the same ad, ad advisors who were dismissed as callow incompetence in Afghanistan, he said, quote, most of them are adults. They are potty trained. This kind of U.S. response hasn't happened in over 20 years since the Clinton administration's intervention in the Balkans. <laughs> so think about what's happened here. Heisborg um, has, say, has said, look, we haven't had a real adult in the room since Bill Clinton and the action in the Balkans, which was a disaster. That was adult foreign policy. Now we have adult foreign policy with Biden. In other words, I mean, look at the danger in all this. When the Europeans start saying this is adult foreign policy, we love what they're doing. Well, of course they would. Why? Because it helps them. Because essentially the United States is stepping in and helping them in fighting their wars. That's the exact opposite of what the United States foreign policy was in the founding period. It's the, it's the exact opposite of the Monroe Doctrine, which the main premise of the Monroe Doctrine is stay out of European wars for European benefit. But that's what the United States is doing here. Where is the tangible benefit for the United States in Ukraine. What what do American citizens see out of Ukraine? What benefits do we have except higher taxes and potentially a, a major escalating global conflict that's going to kill Americans? Where is the tangible benefit for the United States, for the citizens of the United States in Ukraine? It's a tangible benefit for France, potentially, or Germany, or Poland, or Ukraine. But what about the United States? This is what Trump was asking with NATO. Do we really even need this thing anymore? Do we need it? Can't you fight your own wars? Why are we getting involved in Ukraine? What are we doing? Now, uh, I, I'm not so certain if Trump was president, we wouldn't still be heavily involved in Ukraine. I can't say we wouldn't. I know there are some people that probably wouldn't. You know, Rand Paul's one. Ron Paul's another. There were even people who would, not, who would avoided this at all costs and just let Ukraine be, be Ukraine and deal with Russia the way it needed to. So Heisberg adds, we're going back to a world that people my age recognize. He's in his early 70s. So we're going back to the, to the 1960s and 70s of a Cold War period. Is this what we really want? Do we really want a new Cold War? Another source of, Amer of American power, the peace continues, Chinese weakness. As Putin's military got shredded on the battlefield, uh, Chairman Xi mismanaged the covert response and cemented one-man rule at his, at his party congress in ways that spooked neighbors and investors. Adding an aging population and slowing growth, and at least by the new Davos consensus, we passed peak China and are headed the other way. This doesn't mean China won't be a danger. Its frailties could make Xi less predictable and more dangerous. But the idea once dominant here that China would soon succeed the United States as the world's leading power sounds ridiculous to Davos ears, as much as the claims about Japanese supremacy in the 1980s did a few years after they were made. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, see, this is this is the point. Is is the United States now trying to break China and break Russia? So we're back as the world's only superpower. I mean, is that Biden's objective here? Is that becoming clear now what they're trying to do? Is this kind of George W. Uh, H. W. Bush New World Order stuff? You know, post-Cold War Soviet Union, are we fighting the Cold War to get rid of the Cold War again? Is Putin now the the uh, red flag, the hammer and sickle, and we're trying to knock that down again? I mean, what's happening here? And then, of course, trying to break China, too, which people are afraid of authoritarian China. I mean, look, China, again, is China really a paper tiger? Same thing with the Soviets. Is their military being exposed as not being very good? And would that be the case with the Chinese as well? We know our military has its own cracks, right? But is this what's happening with the war in the Ukraine? Bearishness on China and on Europe's prospects adds to America's appeal, in particular for business elites. Here's a typical sentiment. Quote, the U.S. in almost any sector is the most attractive market, not just in terms of size, but innovation. Uh, says Vaz Narishman, who runs the Swiss drug maker Novartis the world's fourth biggest pharmaceutical company with a large presence in Massachusetts. As the world worries about possible recession, another part of the new consensus is that the U.S. would weather it best. Well, that's a very interesting position. When the United States is out now with 126% of GDP in terms of spending and debt, we are spending more than we have, and it's getting to a, a danger zone. So what's going to happen? Um, how are we going to get out of this is the real question. And it, can the United States print itself out of this? We know other, the reason the dollar has remained relatively strong and stable is because other places are printing more than we are. That's the only reason. You take that out, if anybody gets to a point where they're going to stop printing, then the United States is going to have to stop printing and, or, and you know, we're in trouble. But on the other hand, um, printing is leading to higher inflation on everything, on everything. This upbeat view of the U.S. isn't intended to warm patriotic or partisan fires. For one thing, the Davos consensus is often wrong. Not so long ago, this crowd was long on crypto and short on the U.S. It's also worth listening to the anxieties. They're as revealing as the bullishness about America and the state of the world. In the wake of the Trump era, everyone feels free to doubt the stability of the American system, even if the midterms sent a reassuring message of back to normalcy. Hmm. Again, think about what he's saying here. The Democrats are normal. Trump was abnormal. The Democrats are normal. Biden is normal. This is all establishment speak. What we need is the establishment. We need the middle. We need the moderates. We need the Bidens. We need the Bushes. We need the Clintons. These are the people we need in power because that's normal. Trump is abnormal. The Republicans are abnormal. Anti-globalization is abnormal. Are you sure about that? Or is this just traditionally American? Most global companies and players know the policy paralysis and political polarization firsthand. And yet, as often as an executive will bemoan that members of Congress care more about Fox, MSNBC bookings than grappling with complex legislation, in the same breath they'll mention a constitutional order going back 250 years and traditions of rule of law hard to find in many other places. Until proven otherwise, probably by its own hand, democracy in America is one of the safer bets in the world, they say. So stability in the United States, which is... I mean, 250 years is but there's more, there's other places that are more stable. The British are more stable. Absolutely, the British are more stable. So are they the safer bet? But of course, the British have stepped aside and let the United States lead. The new anxiety. America is back on the world stage, but what kind of America? On multi on multilateralism through NATO or the UN and on the security in Europe, the Biden administration harkens back to another century, not to the Obama era 
which began the distancing from traditional allies, who recoiled over the pivot to Asia and the red line in Syria that wasn't, that Trump continued. But its approach to trade and to industrial policy that prioritizes reshoring and buy American to many Davos size resembles Trump more than any other recent president. So this is interesting because, yeah, I mean, when Trump was running for president, he had a very America first trade policy. Biden essentially has echoed the same thing. He said Trump was all wrong, but he's followed Trump in this way. And Obama, as they're saying, was a complete pivot. It was something else. So what they're basic what what Kaminsky is saying is that Trump was a mix between Biden and Obama. Obama had started this idea of American decline, you know, kind of you know, managing decline of America in, in terms of the world superpower and how that was going to work out. Trump continued that process. Though I would say Trump was a little different there. And then um, you also have this idea of American independence, anti-globalization. And Biden is kind of an old 1940s, 1930s America firster I mean, in terms of trade. This continuity is what makes Europeans sound conflicted on the United States. The Inflation Reduction Act, which will push billions in subsidies to American industry, and a CHIPS Act that seeks to repatriate the production of semiconductors prompted dismay in Europe, as does the Biden administration's indifference to the World Trade Organization. Joe Manchin, the principal author of the IRA legislation, felt the backlash firsthand in Davos, as my colleague Alex Ward and Susanna Lynch reported Thursday. Um... So Americans being more independent, at least in terms of manufacturing and trying to have their own economy, is dangerous to the world because we're not going to buy superconductors somewhere else. We're not going to buy aspirin from someone else. I mean, these are things about security that people are interested in. The populist right, of course, has picked up on this. This is Trump. I've said before, Trump was simply a 1930s Democrat. It's all he was. And this piece essentially echoes that in a lot of ways. And Biden's the same thing. The hope that the Biden administration about the Biden administration was that it would be less inwardly looking than outwardly looking. Cecilia Malmstrom, a Swedish politician who ran EU trade policy in the last decade, told a small lunch gathering in Davos. A European leader who was speaking on background in another private meeting put it more bluntly. The United States undermines globalization, the other pillar of U.S. leadership. This could be the biggest strategic mistake in, a, in global relations for a long time. To them, this approach is a rebuke of America's commitment to a global order built on open trade and democratic values, what was known at one point as the Washington Consensus, which, as opposed to any fleeting one reached in Davos, held for decades. If America will be both strong again and more willing to, to go alone, this is a big thing, said Francis Heisberg. This is very unlike the America of the past. It looks like this will be a century of disorder, and that's pretty scary. So if the United States, what, what Kaminsky is saying here, if the United States decides to disengage on the global economy to try to be more interested in its own well-being and not that of the world, well, that could be a dangerous thing for the rest of the world. This is a very interesting you know, debate about free trade, what actually that is, fair trade, uh, you know, all of these things. Uh, NAFTA, GATT, the, the, uh, the World Trade Organization, all of that. What is the United States' role in globalization of the economy? Is it going to be more interested in its own security, its own energy independence, or these kind of things? You know, again, you can call it the populist right, but it's it's been around for a long time. You can go back to Henry Clay for this stuff, right? So, what kind of what kind of policy are we going to follow here in the United States in terms of trade and also, again, 
on the world stage with war, diplomacy. How are these things going to work together? And what this piece basically describes is a Biden administration that's taking some of Trump um, and turning on Obama in some ways and going back to, um, you know, maybe kind of a, a George H.W. Bush position in foreign policy. I don't know. But, I mean, it's, it's very interesting how the Biden administration is managing all of this stuff. And again, foreign policy drives domestic policy. So when you're talking about spending on, on foreign powers and you're looking at uh, trade and how that affects foreign policy, all this matters, which is why it should be the most important thing you focus on when thinking about a president. What is their foreign policy? I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.